1: Welcome to the Virago Podcast, a monthly celebration of books, reading and writing, brought to you by Virago Press, the international publisher of books by women. Hello, I'm Antonia Hodgson and I'm delighted to sit down with Osna Serstad to talk about her career as an award-winning foreign correspondent and author, and most especially to discuss her new book, Two Sisters, already a big bestseller in Europe um, and the number one bestseller in Norway, and uh, the winner of the prestigious Brugge Prize. I've been Osna's editor here in the UK for the last 15 years and the first project we worked on together was the Bookseller of Kabul which spent a year in the Sunday Times top 10 and has sold two million copies around the world. One of the distinguishing features of Osna's work is her unique ability to create intimate dramatic portraits of ordinary lives in crisis. These are stories from the front line told at street level focusing on individual families, individual lives. At the same time, her books offer fascinating insights into a number of long-running conflicts, from Chechnya to Iraq, Serbia to Afghanistan, and now Syria. Published on the 15th of March, Two Sisters into the Syrian Jihad has already been hailed as a masterpiece by the Sunday Times, as well as a masterclass in investigative journalism. It prompted Guardian journalist and author Luke Harding to call Osna the supreme non-fiction writer of her generation thank you so much for taking time out today to talk with me and I've got so many questions I want to ask you but, um, and I will come on to Two Sisters of course in a moment but I, I just wanted to begin by asking you about your early career. Now I know you studied uh, Russian and Spanish and the history of philosophy at Oslo University but when did you decide to move from that to become a foreign correspondent and why? Uh, it was never a decision, really. It was just a coincidence. Um,
2: many of my things, many of what happened in my life are coincidences. And what happened is I was a student of political science in Russia, in Moscow. This was in '93, when so many things were happening. Uh, and I met this guy who was the assistant of the... President of Parliament. Mm. And he I think he wanted to impress me. So he said, Oh, you might want to meet the President of Parliament being a student of political science. And I said, Yes, sure. And then he fixed an appointment. And then uh, I, as we were going into the building of the Parliament, he said, Oh, by the way, I told him you're a journalist. And I was like, Hey, I'm not a journalist, I'm <laughs> a student. And he's like, Oh, but he doesn't have time to meet with students. So just invent the name of an edition <laughs> paper. And ask some questions and, uh, you know, you got your meeting. And uh, I did that and it was during that meeting I was thinking, of course... As if I'm a journalist, all doors are open, and you can ask anyone about anything, and so that's actually the start. So that was my first article.
1: Isn't that fascinating? Because it, there's a theme that runs through your books of how how you are able to enter people's lives, and, and so is that something that immediately you thought I, I want to do more of this?
2: Yes, probably that's right. Like uh, often it's I I when when something happens to me, a coincidence or whatever I probably good at just grabbing yeah. the opportunity and just okay let's try to do that and then what happened i wrote that article or that interview and i went to back to norway and um uh, talked to the editor of the paper where i uh that i sent it to and he said after that one article that he he asked me if i wanted to become the moscow correspondent well. of that paper <laughs> And I was like, "Wow! Well, I only have written this one article. And then he said, well, I think it's easier to teach journalism to a Russian speaker than it's to teach Russian to a journalist. Ah. <laughs> so I'll just, you know, teach you the whole process. And he di- did. And I started out. Uh, and I was there for uh, three years then. This was 93 to 96. So very important and forming years for Russia. And probably the only years where they had some kind of democracy yes. and open discussion and, you know, literally you know, hundreds of parties were formed every month and, and there was open debates and open quarrels. And, and it was really
1: on the path to democracy that lasted for that very little window of time. Uh, we might come back to uh, Russia towards the end of the conversation because I'm fascinated on, on your views on where, the, where they are now. But... Um, one thing I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about is that um, obviously you spent many years as a foreign correspondent, um, but for your last two books, um, you have focused to some extent on your home country of Norway. Is that something that just happened by accident again? You said you fall into yes, these coincidences. another coincidence.
2: Well, by coincidence and by necessity, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I always... Um, well, my four first books were... Um, As you mentioned, they were about war zones far away. Serbia, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Chechnya. Uh, And then after Chechnya, I moved back to Norway, and I have children. And it's like, I can't any longer just go out into the world and just, you know, stay as long as the story demands. Uh, so, um, my second last book was um, about the Norwegian tragedy and massacre of Anders Breivik on the island of Utøya, uh, killing of um, 77 members of the Labour Party and the Labour Party youth. Uh, and that was a story that literally happened mm. like on my street. He lived on my street for a while, uh, the, the, the terrorist, the killer. Mm, and then this story is really a story about Oslo, it's a story about Norway, it's a story about my time now, uh, I'm of political terrorism and it's a story about immigration because he was basically, uh, he was an anti-Islamist so he wanted the Muslims to leave Europe as mm. such. Um, and some of the main characters in the book are two Kurdish girls uh, who had fled Iraq um, and to move to Norway to get mm. a, you know, a safe life, and only one of them comes back from this island. So And when I wrote this book, uh, of course it was important for me to have had the experience of the war in Iraq, to be able to portray their lives. And it was, this was the kind of book where I had to use everything I knew, really, from reporting, from life, uh, friendship, love, uh, being a mother, like all these things all came together in that yeah. book because it's such a complex book yeah. happening in my own country. Uh, so it's sometimes um, the world comes to you. And this also actually happened in, in my last book, which is called The Two Sisters. And it's about uh, two Norwegian Somali sisters, teenagers who left Norway, rejected Norway, and joined the Islamic, the so-called Islamic State, in Syria. Uh, and that's another story about how we we are one world. They come from Somalia, they go to Syria, they lived in Norway. So again, um, for me, the fact that I. Many part, big parts of the book is happening in Syria. The fact that I've been there, the fact that I've covered wars, I think it made it easier yes. for me to to do it uh, had I not had that
1: former experience. It, it certainly reads, I mean, I, you feel every, every moment there in Syria that we'll come on to the father, Sadiq, um, of the two sisters. Um, when, he, when he goes to Syria, I absolutely felt I was there in a way that... Um, uh, it is almost impossible to get from other from other news sources I think there's something about about that experience and it's so fascinating that it's it's in part because you have been there. I mean obviously not a lot of time and, and and so that whole wealth of your experience of of, of years and years of, of, of war correspondence. Um, I, was, I was wondering as well because of you know we're talking about radicalization process um, and I really really do want to come on to two sisters specifically um, It just seems fascinating to me that you have moved from Breivik um, and his radicalization to the two sisters. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the story of how they become radicalized. A little bit about the family generally and and, and what happened. Yes, okay, so first the family. um, The father,
2: Sadik, came to Norway. He was a child soldier in Somalia fighting for years, and then he got enough of fighting, and he left the country. He got a, uh, he bought a passport with a stamp to Denmark, and then he heard it was better in Norway, and came to Norway in 1996. And then he seeked for asylum. He didn't get asylum, but he got to stay on humanitarian grounds, and then he got family reunification, so he shipped over his family, his wife, and three children. And that's the main characters of the story already now. So so then Ayan was then six years old. Her sister Leila was three. And then there was a brother, Ismail who was five. So they came as toddlers from the war zone to Norway. And they integrated quite easily and smoothly. These kids, they were good at school. They were popular. They were active. They were doing well in sports. And they were going to the beach. They were swimming. They were living life more or less like uh, Norwegian children. The only person who's not really integrated uh, in the family is the mother. She never really learns Norwegian. She never integrates. She never held a job. Uh, She is the household manager, and that's her duty. And then when the girls become teenagers, the mother is getting afraid, and she's afraid of Norway, that's her fear is to lose her girls to Norway. But she sees that she's losing them because as on the surface they're becoming a and they dress in skinny jeans and t-shirts, they're starting to go to parties and she's terrified that they will get a boyfriend or starting drinking alcohol or do anything that will ruin their reputation. So she discusses with her girlfriends like what to do, what to do with our girls. And they decide together, these women, that they should hire a Quran teacher. Who will teach them the right, you know, how to get back on the right path? And they find this beautiful young man, also a Somali from one of the, unfortunately one of the extremist mosques of Oslo, Mm -hmm. and he starts his classes. And uh, that's, as the father now says, that's the start of our nightmare. It's nothing wrong in the beginning. It's just like the Quran, nothing wrong. And then he his extremist um, way of seeing the world uh, takes over. He picks out only the very violent part of uh, the Quran, yes. so that these kids think that that is Islam. And then many of these girls and, and young boys they they move on to more fundamentalist organizations, and so it's a step by step radicalization where every step. In itself, is not so far, but when they all go in the same direction, they are suddenly, or not suddenly, actually, it takes several years, until they are then on the border of Syria and they cross the border.
1: I I think that is fascinating, and you you write that so well, um, that it isn't one great cataclysmic event. You know, it isn't one... And there isn't one moment, I don't think, I mean, you may disagree, where the parents could have said, stop, you know... uh, that it, was an, it was an incremental um, story of radicalization and that seems to be the case would you say that's common? Would you say that's a common? Um, there
2: are many different ways into uh, becoming a foreign fighter or someone who supports um, uh, the Islamic State in Syria um, These I mean, the most common way in is for, for first and foremost, you're a guy. You like eighty, ninety percent of those who left, were boys um, and or men, young men. Uh, but even it's it's a very high percentage. It's the first time in the world that there's so many women are, who, yes. who go who go and join an, a terrorist group or a fighting group. So, but still, the majority are guys, and half of them, uh, more or less, uh, have a criminal record have been in contact with the police, um, when you look at their backgrounds, the most typical background would be instability in life, mm-hmm. lack of a father is the common denominator, uh, the fact that they are, you know, they, their lives are not really going anywhere, um, they have no direction in life, and and then suddenly, the good thing about religion could also be that it gives you a framework, mm-hmm. it d- gives you structure, and especially Islam, it gives you, uh, even a daily structure of praying, or how to dress, how to behave. It's not just about beliefs. So that's the most common, and some of these guys, is kind of overnight. Uh, the girls uh, that I've studied, uh, are they seem to be more religiously driven. It's more like to do the right thing, uh, the search for meaning, of course for identity. And, of course, for them all, about finding something bigger than themselves, something that can carry them a bit, uh, and something that is, um, you know, important and right and just. So that's important when I looked at these girls, like... Mm, they only want to do good. There's mm. nothing evil with them or brutal. They do become brutal, definitely. Mm. They are also brutalized by their lives in the uh, in the in Syria. Yes. But but on their way there, I can't really say that they are mean or evil. They do become. Uh, I would say they become very very harsh uh, towards other groups. Yes.
1: Later, I mean that must be. I mean. It must be part, presumably, partly through their experiences. I mean. Yes, yes.
2: Um, and their worldview. If if yeah. you suddenly all your belief is coming from one source, which is the you know or the very v- extremist uh, vein of Islam, uh, but the religiously driven radicalization that they are part of, uh, this um, urge to please God, uh, and as they see it, life. As we live it here and now, it's not the real life. Real life comes after death. This is just a test, mm. and uh, important as a test because the better you do in this test in this life, you'll get some bonus points, and you you know you get it that will give you a good place in heaven. Mm. And the best place you get only if you die as a martyr. So they and the more you suffer, the better you know, the higher up in paradise. And if you die as a martyr, you get as close as possible to to God for eternity. And who wouldn't want to trade this little, you know, simple, petty life against, you know, great eternal life uh, in heaven, in paradise, where you never will...
1: And, and what's, so, what's so striking to me is that, and yet, as you say, they, unlike some other, you know, the, the people that we've we discussed discuss in the past, who, who've gone on to to have really radical uh, uh, and violent uh, stories, they did have a comparatively stable background. And, I, and just talking about the father, they, they of course have a father who then actively goes out to try and his how you do, he would say it, save them. You know, he goes mm. out to to bring them home. Mm. Um, and if you just talk a little bit about about that, story. yes.
2: So when the girls have decided to go to Syria, they have planned this for for a year. That's what they say, and I think that's um, I think that's uh, according to my research that also fits into when they start and think and switch. Uh, yeah, to to. Uh, to becoming like kind of fighters, foreign fighters in their heads. Um, and they plan it and they, they deceive their parents, they fool their parents, they go to school every day just to pretend that they they are mm. ordinary. And then, then one day they don't come back from school. Uh, and then they uh, are on their way to Syria. And they send an email that same evening, the first evening when they don't come back, and they tell their parents that we've left, we've gone, Uh, we're never coming back, Uh, don't be sorry, don't be sad. So they're very like, as if they've just been away, uh, or as if they're going away for a weekend or something. But of course, the parents are desperate to get them back. And the father, three days after the girls... Get on that plane to Turkey. He gets on the same route, not knowing exactly where they've gone, but he somehow he man-
1: manages to take the same route. I mean, it's absolute agony in the book. I mean, uh, Kate Haydy, the, the the great foreign correspondent, UK British foreign correspondent, uh, says that the book at this point reads like a thriller, um, and it, it really it, it just you your grit, even though one knows that this, this is not going to probably end well there's this feeling perhaps he might yeah. he might catch them before yes. they get to the border he might yeah. you know it's that classic what if, yeah. you know, if if only because he was there in the same
2: town mm. for days um, but not knowing that they were there but it's like it's not that many border towns so it's like yeah uh, he came to the right one and then they passed over to the border he went after them and he actually managed to find them which is quite amazing, like finding two girls in Syria in Niqab. Uh, not easy, but he's, he's able to, um, to, he then, he joins the Al-Nusra Front uh, in order to have protection. Uh, and then what happens there, and this is quite in the beginning, so I'm not giving mm-hmm. it too much away. Okay, so he, 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 get, he hears that the girls are in a car uh, coming and he's able to, he's going to meet them. And then something happens uh, because the car is not stopping. So then his Nostra soldiers shoot after the car. They're shooting at the car. And the youngest sister is injured. And then the car speeds off. Uh, and then she's taken to hospital in an ISIS area. So he's not allowed to go after her. But he's able to meet the oldest daughter. And he tries to hug her. And he says, finally, you're coming back. I'm, I'm here to save you. And she says, "I can't." And she's like, "He's like, what? Why? Why can't you? I can't. I'm married now, so my life is here." And it's not just because she's she's not forced marriage. She wants yes. to stay. This is her. At that time, the foreign fighters they had everything they needed. They came like these Norwegian girls. They came on with in with money. They had, uh, uh, yeah. They got. Fool the bank system and, and they had quite a lot of stolen money with them so they could buy anything they needed and and for a while they were quite having a good life they were like the over the upper class of of raqqa mm.
1: and, and it's and and perhaps as an element of pride do you think that and 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 in the, you know and also they've been working towards this for so long mm. to turn around and go home again now yes and
2: that's of course difficult, difficult to really know uh their opinions yes. uh and the interesting part I would say for me when I wrote the book is when I got these chat logs between the two sisters and the brother and that log lasts for two and a half years and it's a constant conversation about life and opinions and and how they miss each other and so on Uh, and they're very very um, consistent in we're not coming back we like it here you should always come down you should also come down here because ISIS is taking over the world and you better before it's too late Uh, so but of course do they really mean it I got the impression that they do Mm. Uh, or that they did I don't know now uh, so when the father came to get them I think they were just living the time of their life because um, this is also um, this is also protest against conservatism it's a protest against their parents so even though they were living in a a relatively liberal family they had never travelled alone. They never been on their own. They never done their own decisions. They never. They could never be, choose to have a boyfriend if they wanted. And suddenly they can go to Syria into the desert. They
1: can marry. It's a romantic life in the beginning before they were starting to be bombed. It's a fascinating way of looking, at it, of think, thinking that they're going. You know, into, you know, probably for women. You know, the idea of, of, of living. You know, such a kind of. Um, clostrated life, you know, um, or, or, you know, and, and but for them, it's a sense of, you, in a way, you're saying that it's almost for them that was a sense of freedom. I think that's my impression of those yeah. two. Yes. Because, of course, you read
2: accounts of uh, some girls who come and they're suddenly married off to someone they don't really like, and it's like, they want to, you know, they want to go home the first day they're there to their mother, back home, this is not what I expected. But we also, we, because we are vilifying uh, all, you know, ISIS fighters. But of course, some of them are, uh, you know, great husbands, they could be good friends. They're not evil, you know. They are evil in their actions against the Yazidis and the Shias. But they could be just like, uh, you know, comparison, you take the, the, the Nazis of Germany. You'd have, have perfectly wonderful family fathers, who would be, you know, really nice to their loved ones, and then they are have a job in Auschwitz, in the, you know, a day job, or they're planning Auschwitz. And I think um, with with these uh, the husbands of these two girls, they seem to be like when they wrote home, like very much in love, and and it's like probably for so even though they are, you know, secluded um, or uh, can't really leave their house, even though they said they were able to do that. I don't know um but, but that they for a while were was living something grand and something romantic and something that seemed to be truthful and yeah
1: um there's a lot more I'd love to talk to you about this book i i I think well, I fear that we'd give away too much of of the book if we did um one, th- one thing I did just want to ask you is um you know a lot of people want to know you know what's happened to the sisters now without giving away too much of the story. Um, uh, what do you think the, the, sort of the future holds for them? Yeah,
2: and we're actually not giving away much because I don't know. Mm. Uh, I don't even know if they're still alive. Uh, so what we do know is that they lived for years in Raqqa. And then uh, knowing that the bombing campaign uh, was approaching and that the Raqqa would be attacked, not just a little bit. It had always been a little bit attacked, but it would be massively bombed. So most ISIS fighters took out their wives and children from Raqqa, including uh, the families of these two girls. Uh, And they took them to the border area uh, between Syria and Iraq in in eastern Syria. uh, And... Those areas are now taken back by the Syrian army, so they can't be there. So either they're somewhere in the desert, uh, in a house, in a tent, who knows? They might be in a refugee camp, they might have gone over to Iraq, but there's not that many places they can be. But there's a mystery now, and that includes uh, of the 5,000 foreign fighters who've gone, more or less 5,000 from Europe, uh Only uh less than a third has come back to so who many are killed down there We don't know, or the researchers don't know mm. uh who how many are roaming around, so their house might be hit might have been hit by a bomb and they're killed together um and we won't be notified on at all maybe mm. depends because before uh ISIS had this system of notifying parents and they had a system of you know congratulations your son is now a martyr he's with god but the system is gone uh there's there's no one to to having the phone numbers the computers are crashed and it's uh so it's really um totally uncertain until the parents get some phone call with good or bad news uh, that okay. we will
1: know. I, I mean for the parents I mean you, I know you're still a little in contact with, uh, with them and uh, how do you feel that they're dealing with the day-to-day of having basically lost their two children? Yeah
2: it's um, now it's been uh, four and a half years and they have other children so they, I think they just need to, to carry on living for, because for first two, three years, it was like a total emergency situation that, like, and, and also the fact that I think it's very hard to live, um, for so long on a very high adrenaline yes. on a, in a, a state of emergency, uh, like they may come today, next hour, the... So now I think they're trying to forget them. Yes. Yeah. They even sometimes said that I I think of them as dead. The father says sometimes yes. he doesn't really because there's no. I mean yes, there's grief, but there's more desperation. Yes. And of course, once he does get that message, that he can start grieving. Yes. But then it be it's been like this outstretched. It's an agony. It must yeah. be an agony. Yeah. Yes. Um, And I know that the mother also says that she tells me that I try not to think too much about them. But, of course, uh, she does. Um, It's also for the little brothers. Um, They don't like to talk about them. Mm -hmm. The bigger brother has said that uh, he's, he just said sometimes he tries to wipe them out of his life. He's very angry at them because, and he wrote to them too, by the way, you've destroyed my life. Because I used to have two sisters that I admired and that I looked up to, and now what do I have? Uh, you know, some some, yeah, mm, some um, martyrs or some uh, jihadists down in Syria. So he 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 has gone through so much suffering because of that, and now he's kind of come out on the other yes. side, um, at least by decision that okay, uh, you can't expect to continue with all the people you start out your life with, and he sees it like that he's a bit angry they did this that's very important he they did this by their own choice mm-hmm. and i think sometimes we are too prone to say about women uh, who join isis that they're brainwashed or manipulated or lured into it and i think that they go as much open eyed into it as the guys do it's
1: fascinating there's that, that that sense of agency that yeah yeah um i i think um Moving on from that a little bit, I just um, wanted to end really by talking about your next steps because we've talked. You know, it's a very intense story, and uh, as was the the um, one of us, your 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 book on uh, Bre- Anders Breivik and the, the Toya victims. Um, what, what do you feel is your next, your, do you feel with your next projects you're going to be following similar themes or are there other things that you want to explore next um, that you can talk about? Yes, or? well, um, I, I was thinking
2: either I have to do another book about Norway, my third <laughs> book about <laughs> Norway, like how, many, how <laughs> many stories can we find in that country uh, or I'll have to go somewhere I can take my kids. So now I'm actually working on two books. I'm working on a little book actually about Norway, which might not uh, become a book. I'm just looking at it. Is this is a political thriller about the Labour mm-hmm. Party that was hit by a Me Too scandal? Uh, so the vice president lost his job, uh, and it's quite interesting. If I it depends if I can get everyone in the story. Uh, talking about what happened to them and and how this uh, this whole thing you know how how it hit politics, uh, so that is something that I'm doing this spring uh, if I'm You be never doing... shy away from the difficult subjects. No, <laughs> <is> it's actually <laughs> yeah. one thing when I try to get hold of all this Islamists in Norway is like to get hold of the Labour Party of Norway <laughs> is much more difficult because they're now. Told the split. Everyone, uh, you know, are not not everyone, but they're very much like you know, so much infighting, uh, because maybe they lost their ID, they lost their, they lost their vision, um, and and that is also part of the story. Like what is happening to the left IDs um in uh, in Europe and everything becomes only positions and so i'll, I'll see and then is my my other project is is then a book about a town that i found down in alabama <laughs> uh that is uh, a, re- a reflection of
1: trump's america in, in one wow. town wow. so we'll see Fantastic, I can't wait for that um, I think we'll have to leave it there I could talk to you for hours about all of these subjects and more, I even begin to touch on things like the, the left wing situation in Europe which is, is enough, enough for a whole podcast in itself um, for now though, thank you so much Osna for taking the time to talk to us today Thank uh, you for having offices. me <laughs> and hope I can come back and talk about the left situation Welcome. in Europe <laughs> and the Alabama situation uh, in a couple of years Thank you so much, thanks Thank you Thanks for listening to this episode of the Virago Books podcast. I hope you'll join us again in a month's time for our next episode for more books, readers, writers, and conversation. In the meantime, please keep in touch and tell us what you think on Twitter at Virago Books or on Facebook at Virago Press.